primary season is about to begin. After one inaugural primary in the state of Texas, we are now moving into the heavy meat of the 2022 primary calendar. May is the first big month of primaries, and in what is going to be a recurring feature for the next few months, we are going to cover this heavily. This is the first inaugural episode of our Mega Previews. That's a preview of all the primaries that will be coming in the month ahead. And then we will also do shorter reaction episodes. And I will try, uh, when and where possible, to get guests who can speak more authoritatively about some of those primaries after each of these primary nights. So if you have been waiting for content that is going to prepare you in great detail to be a savvy election watcher of 2022, this is the beginning of that content. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, as always, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on Facebook and Instagram through the feeds of the Robertson School. Please do give us those five-star ratings. The content we produce, I think, is very good, and we want to get it out to more people. All right, so guys, I am so stoked for this episode because I love covering the horse race of the election, partially because I don't study it, right? So it's still fun for me. If you study something, it's not as much fun as it used to be because you actually have to grind through and do some research and things like that, and you have to grind through and produce academic literature on it. But I have not gotten there with the horse race aspect of American politics. And so it's it's kind of, for me, it's a little bit like football. And I am excited about this. As I'm recording this last night, my kids woke me up five times. So I've had three cups of coffee. So that might be also part of the reason, the combination of uh, being tired and, and being really energetic. But I think that's going to make this a, a particularly fun episode. And I'll try to bring a high level of energy to all of these primary elections. So first of all, What are the things that we're looking for as we look at these primaries? What are the key things to watch? On the Republican side, it's pretty easy. It's it's a pretty straightforward question and a pretty straightforward narrative. It's a question of how much does the Donald Trump endorsement still matter? The answer that we're probably going to find is it depends. My working hypothesis in 2022 is that in a crowded field or a field where no one has really been able to stand out from the crowd, the Trump endorsement can be helpful. But Trump Trump's endorsement in and of itself is not going to make up for a weak campaign or a campaign that doesn't really focus on the issues that people care the most about. And so there are a couple of primaries that are really going to test this hypothesis because there's some big Trump endorsements at play in the plethora of primaries that we're going to be talking about today. It is a veritable primary palooza that we are going to be going through today. Okay, so that's on the Republican side. How much does the Trump endorsement matter? That's point number one. Second point for the Republicans is, do we see any of the faction fights that have been happening on the intellectual right between the national conservatives and the liberal conservatives, liberal conservatives being more fiscally conservative defenders of the free market, national conservatives being folks that are more interested in sort of using state power to advance their aims, particularly on social issues, right? Are we going to see any of those issues really play themselves out in primaries, those divisions play themselves out in primaries? On the Democratic side, 
there's been this ongoing divide between more traditional Democrats and what I would call the DSA types, the Democratic Socialists of America types, your squad, your AOC, those types of folks. Are we going to see any of those primary dynamics play themselves out? Now, there aren't as many fun primaries on the Democratic side in the month of May. And by fun primaries, I mean primaries that could determine the outcome of a given race. But we will try to cover those primaries where we can. So let's start with our first day. May 3rd, we have Indiana and Ohio. We're not going to focus as much on Indiana. Todd Young, who's the Republican incumbent senator there, should coast to easy both primary win and re-election. There are a couple of contested primaries for lower down races. However, we're not going to chronicle necessarily every house race. And Indiana has a couple of house races with interesting primaries, but I would say there's not a ton of action. And there's another big primary happening the same day that we really want to focus in on, that's Ohio particularly the Ohio Senate primary. On the Democratic side, the presumptive nominee is Tim Ryan, formerly a moderate member of Congress from the Youngstown area who pivoted to the left for his brief abortive, and frankly, I'm not sure why, uh, nonsensical, like not not really having a clear justification, uh, presidential run in 2020. Now he's trying to pivot again back to the center. He's got a progressive uh, primary challenger named Morgan Harper, While it is expected that Tim Ryan is probably going to win, there's a very faint possibility of an upset. Should that happen, this race would move off the playing field for Democrats. In a Harper Senate primary win, moves this race off the playing field for Democrats, regardless of who the Republicans nominate. Tim Ryan is the strongest possible candidate for Democrats, so if he is the nominee, as we expect, you should expect him to have a decent shot. The Republican race seems to be down to three frontrunners here in Ohio. We are looking at businessman Mike Gibbons, state treasurer Josh Mandel, and hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance. What is interesting here is the dynamic of these three frontrunning candidates. Also in, in the race and worth discussing, although I don't expect either of them to be able to pull up off the upset here, are Ohio GOP chairwoman Jane Timken and state senator and family member of the family that owns the Cleveland Guardians, that used to be the Cleveland Indians, if you haven't been paying attention to baseball for the last two years, Matt Dolan. Now, the the fascinating dynamic here is this. Josh Mandel was originally a pretty standard Mitt Romney-ish Republican, but has been running as a very hardcore, almost like a Twitter parody of what a Trump supporter would be like. That's kind of been the Mandel campaign. Mike Gibbons is interesting. He's got a little bit more of a libertarian cred. He was endorsed by Rand Paul, although he's a good bit more hawkish than Paul on foreign policy, from what I can tell. And Gibbons is is sort of a running in that sort of very traditional lane for Republicans of I'm an outsider businessman. Gibbons has run before and did not catch fire, but he seems to have gotten a little bit more momentum this time. And he's a little bit older than the other two candidates. J.D. Vance is an interesting character in this sense. You know, he wrote the book Hillbilly Elegy, sort of talking about some of his criticisms of, of that culture. You know, very traditional culture, especially in southeastern Ohio. In 2016, he was an Evan McMullen supporter, and he railed against Donald Trump and Trumpism. But he seemed to have had a conversion. Not clear how genuine a conversion, but a conversion nonetheless. And he's really leaning hard into the national conservatism. He was a speaker at the National Conservative Conference. He's been endorsed by Marjorie Taylor Greene. He has talked about how he doesn't really care what happens to Ukraine, and has been opposed to any type of U.S. involvement until the border is fixed. Apparently, he's opposed to the U.S. walking and chewing gum. 
he has also recently been endorsed by Donald Trump. Before the Vance endorsement, I would say he was the third wheel, and it was most likely to be Gibbons or Mandel. Now it's really tightly packed. You've seen Vance having some movement in the polls since the endorsement by Trump, but I would say this race is really anybody's guess between the three of them. It's hard to really handicap. If Vance wins, it will be because of the Trump endorsement. Okay, so if in fact that plays itself out, that's a huge win for Trump because then his endorsement came in at the last minute and it made the difference. That said, Vance is probably not the strongest general election candidate against Tim Ryan. Gibbons and Mandel have more of a track record. They have more of a history of running. Uh, Mandel has, has not won for Senate before. He's run a couple of times and his, his track record there is not great, but he actually has more of the statewide name recognition and so on and so forth. Gibbons has more of the money and is, is seen right now as sort of the more broadly acceptable moderate figure, although moderate in this field is, is sort of a relative term relative to Mandel, who's again running as a cartoon caricature of a Trumpist and, and uh, Vance, who's running with the Marjorie Taylor Greene endorsement, as well as Trump's you know, calling Gibbons a moderate might be a bit of a misnomer. I would say he's more in that traditional conservative and libertarian-ish line. It's anybody's guess who comes out the winner of this one. I think any of these three should be slight but significant favorites over Tim Ryan. I would say my gut says that Gibbons of the three has the clearest advantage. You know, maybe uh, makes it more likely are likely Republican with Gibbons, lean Republican with the other two. Um, and of course, if Morgan Harper is the nominee, it doesn't really matter because Republicans are going to win uh, regardless of who they run, because you're not getting a, a down the line progressive candidate who's going to win in Ohio. So that's the Ohio Senate primary. Moving on, we have May 10th, West Virginia. I said we're not going to cover every House primary, but we are going to cover this one because it's a member versus member primary. And those are so sort of interesting. West Virginia is a deep red state. It's Trump plus 30 something. And we have a race between David McKinley and Alex Mooney. McKinley is a very traditional, old-school West Virginia politician. That is to say, he is more economically populist and more socially conservative. He's been around in West Virginia politics for quite some time. He is a little bit older, a little bit more of a sort of a seasoned candidate. Alex Mooney is the former chair of the Maryland GOP. He moved into the western panhandle of West Virginia. Uh, this seems like a really far move if you're not familiar with the geography, but there's a part of a kind of western Maryland and West Virginia where they both kind of stick out and, you know, it's, it's actually not that far of a move, but it did allow him to then win a heavily Republican uh, seat and hold that territory. Mooney is running as the sort of more hardcore, staunch conservative. McKinley is running as sort of the old school West Virginia politician. This will be a good barometer for the mood and the mindset of West Virginia voters. It also has some implications for 2024. McKinley is probably of an age where he's not going to run against Joe Manchin. If Joe Manchin is up again in 2024, if Joe Manchin decides to run, Alex Mooney is certainly ambitious enough that a Senate run could be likely if, in fact, he wins re-election here. It would be a tougher ask, I think, for him if he's not able to win re-election. So we're keeping an eye on that just to kind of see the trajectory of where the Republican base is on some of these issues here in West Virginia. It's a minimal impact. The Republicans are going to hold the seat pretty much regardless. Also on May 10th, we have Nebraska. Why are we talking about Nebraska? Well, because Nebraska has a contested gubernatorial campaign, and this is one of the Trump endorsements that is the most likely, I would say, to give him a black eye. There's multiple different candidates, but if you're watching for the Trump effect, the person you want to look at is Charles Herbster. Herbster is a businessman who Trump endorsed, subsequently credibly accused of sexual harassment 
by a state senator from Nebraska. Other allegations have followed. And so it seems like Herbster may have been damaged by this. Most recent polling saw him in third behind a couple of other candidates, one of whom is state senator Brett Lindstrom. And the other candidate, unfortunately, the name is escaping me at the moment. I do apologize to the citizens of the great state of Nebraska. I hear Runza's are delicious, but I cannot remember everybody that's running for governor in your state. And I will take comfort from the fact that there's a pretty good chance that if your friends and family are from Nebraska, they probably don't know all their names either. Just tends to be the way things go in a low info primary. But if Herbster is in fact harmed by these allegations and somebody else comes out ahead, that's a potential black eye for Trump. But of course, Trump is going to claim it was because of a terrible candidate. If Herbster wins, Trump is going to claim it was because of his endorsement. There's probably some validity to that, frankly, either way. But that is one where the impact uh, for us to be able to judge the impact of Trump's endorsement, can it carry a flawed messenger across the line in a crowded primary? That would be another useful data point. May 17th, Pennsylvania. Take a deep breath because this one is going to take a minute. The primaries here are crowded on both sides or in both major contests. Okay, first of all, let's start with Pennsylvania Senate. On the Democratic side, there are fewer candidates. The likely nominee is Braddock Mayor John Fetterman. Fetterman is an interesting character. He is known for his progressivism, for his uh, combative style on social media. He's a little bit more of an old school progressive in the sense that he's kind of a, a Bernie-ish guy rather than a wokester. What I mean by that is he's, he's kind of a union hall socialist, maybe a little bit more and less up on some of the woke stuff. But he is most likely to be the Democratic nominee. The candidate of the Democratic establishment was former Representative Connor Lamb. Lamb, however, has not managed to gain the same amount of traction as Fetterman, and recent polling had Fetterman in the lead. Wouldn't be totally shocked with a Lamb upset. The other candidate that I'm keeping an eye on is Malcolm Kenyatta. Kenyatta is a progressive politician from Philadelphia, but if, Philly, if turnout on the Democratic side is low and Philly turnout is high, Kenyatta, who is from that southeastern region, could sneak in and get an upset. There hasn't been a lot of polling on this race, so it's hard to say 100%, but I would say it leans Fetterman. Lamb is the strongest general election candidate by a mile, so if you're Republicans, you're, you're sort of hoping that it's not him. And Republicans are going to need all the help they can get because, whoo boy, this primary is crowded and it is messy. There are two and a half favorites for the nomination. Two who seem to be locked at the top of the polls, and one who has a chance to potentially sneak in and gain the nomination. And Trump has also endorsed in this race. This has potentially the biggest blowback opportunity of any of the Trump endorsees, his endorsement in Pennsylvania Senate. And it's an endorsement that is a real head-scratcher. Trump has endorsed physician, Fox News contributor, and someone who spent about six minutes in Pennsylvania in his entire life, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Oz is, of course, the famous Dr. Oz from Fox News. You can see maybe why Trump endorsed him. But Oz has some problems. He has not necessarily been clear in his history of taking conservative positions. Does not have ties to the state. Like, I'm not saying he doesn't have deep ties. He does not really have ties to the state. He has a history of, let's just say, interesting Talking about medical diagnoses, sometimes people have, have described some of what he's done as quack remedies. I'm not going to necessarily adjudicate that because I am not a medical doctor. I'm the other kind of doctor. He was for a while saying maybe he wouldn't relinquish his Turkish citizenship and is considered close to President Erdogan in Turkey by some astute observers. And he's just kind of an odd candidate for a state like Pennsylvania. You know, Pennsylvania is, I don't want to say it's a parochial state, but 
you know, you you kind of want somebody who's got some Pennsylvania ties. You can take the boy out of Pennsylvania, but you can't take the Pennsylvania out of the boy. But Oz, I don't know if he has enough ties to really make that a credible argument. So that is Dr. Oz. The second candidate is David McCormick. He's a West Point grad, a hedge fund CEO. He has lived in Connecticut for a while, but ha- but is originally from Pennsylvania. I want to say somewhere in the western part of the state, I believe. And so he is running as, I would say, a little bit Yunkin-esque is, is the model that he's trying to run in. He's being hit as a carpetbagger. He's at least from Pennsylvania. Like, you know, I don't want to profile people, but you can tell if somebody's from Pennsylvania sometimes by listening to them talk. Not always, but sometimes. I'm from Pennsylvania. You might not be able to hear that by listening to me talk, but I didn't, you know, I, I moved there when I was, uh, when I was 10 or 11, but somebody, you know, grew up, especially in certain parts of Western Pennsylvania, you can't ever quite get the yins out of your voice. And he's got a little bit of yins. So he's got the ties. I, I would say he's worked, worked the, the race pretty hard. He's got self-funding uh, capability. He is certainly, I think of, of the top three, it is the most clear that he would probably beat Fetterman in a general election. Okay, so McCormick has that advantage. And I would say he was leading the pack until Trump endorsed Oz. And now I've seen, again, a divided uh, field. I've seen it go either way. Okay, but we're not done with candidates. The next candidate, the candidate who I've seen surging in the polls, is African-American political commentator. Sometimes she's on TV. Sometimes she's on the radio. Kathy Barnett. Barnett ran for a very blue district in 2020 and performed reasonably well in that race. She is touting her own local ties as composed as proposed to the other folks in the race that she's she's emphasized and hit them for carpetbagging. Ideologically, she is a 200 proof hardcore conservative, but she is emphasizing trying to package that in a way that she'll reach out to new voters. Barnett is going to have strengths and weaknesses as a candidate. You know, it's funny, if I describe McCormick as uh, a poor man's Glenn Youngkin, I, I don't actually know which of them is, is richer. I realize that's sort of ironic because they're both like rich business guys. But anyway, I would say Barnett is trying to run as the next Winsome Sears. Whether she has the same, like Winsome's really good. And I'm not just saying that because she's a Regent grad, because of course she's good because she's a Regent grad. But Winsome's very good. She's very quick on her feet. She's an effective uh, campaigner. She had strong conservative credentials, but also like managed to not step in it too badly and, and really did manage to get some appeal beyond. So there, you can see a pathway where Barnett would be successful. Whether she can replicate Winsome's strategy in a high profile Senate race, I would say is, is TBD, but I wouldn't totally count it out. In terms of electability of who can beat Fetterman if he's the Democratic nominee, I would say it probably goes McCormick, Barnett, Oz of the top three. And Barnett has been kind of surging as McCormick and Oz have been fighting each other. She's been getting a little bit of a surge. And this is a thing that we do see in, in sort of Democrat or Republican primaries. It's what I like to call the Deb Fisher, right? Where you have a candidate who, two candidates at the top of the race who are duking it out, hitting each other, and then another candidate sneaks through and wins. Deb Fisher did this in Nebraska. Mike Braun did this in Indiana. They are both senators, and they both are going to be senators for quite a while. So Barnett has the possibility to pull that, that Deb Fisher-Mike Braun maneuver here. Other candidates to keep an eye on who I think will not be winning but are, are factors in the race is former Lieutenant Governor uh, nominee and businessman Jeff Bartos, former Ambassador to Denmark Carla Sands, 
Carla Sands has also been hit for being carpetbagger because she, you know, moved with her husband and lived in, you know, California. She was an ambassador. You know, she moved with her husband. But guys, listen to her talk. She's from Camp Hill. She's obviously Central Pennsylvania. Like, I'm sorry, you can take you can take the girl out of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think the carpetbagger thing with her. She just hasn't caught on, and it's kind of odd that she hasn't. On paper, she seems like the candidate who really would have. You know, got got a nice background, could have really leveraged her ambassadorial experience and, and familiar with European affairs to, to, you know, take the Ukraine issue front and center, but just has not been able to catch on. And I'm not sure why that's the case. I would love to at some point, you know, chat with somebody who's more plugged in with Pennsylvania and figure out why that's been the case. So those are the major candidates. Gun to my head, I think McCormick probably wins the primary. And, and the reason why I can say that in this one, even though the polling is all, a little bit more all over the place, is just things I've been hearing from folks. I have family who lives, still live in Pennsylvania. You know, I, I keep an ear to the ground there a little bit more than I do in a place like Ohio. And the Oz endorsement has not gone over well. People who are hardcore supporters of Trump are, you know, calling their county chairs, asking them what is going on here and why this is happening. So I don't know that I, that this one is going to work. I think it's probably going to backfire on Trump. And, and that is an unforced error. He could have stayed out of this race. He could have endorsed Carla Sands and done it earlier as somebody that he appointed as, as a donor. And frankly, somebody that raised a lot of money for him. Endorsing Sands would have been smart, but that's not the direction that he decided to go in this in this case. He went with Oz, and it's an inexplicable decision because Oz is the candidate who is the most likely to lose this race for Republicans. He has so many vulnerabilities. There's so many areas where he could be attacked in a general election. There's so many ways in which Republican uh, voters could be targeted with messaging that's opposed to him in a general election. That it's just you're, you're nominating far and away the weakest candidate in the field. So that is Pennsylvania Senate, Pennsylvania governor. Here's the thing about Pennsylvania governor. Democrats are going to nominate attorney general Josh Shapiro. He's been known as sort of a progressive warrior. He is the last row, uh, row officer standing for the Democrats and Republicans are going to nominate somebody, but their field is massive. You know, so very, you have very Trumpist and I would say, uh, you know, 2020 stop the steel advocate, uh, Doug Mastriano. Then you have used to be Trumpist, right? So when Trumpism was about populism and immigration, he was a Trumpist. Now that it's about stop the steel, he's, he's not as much. Uh, and that is former representative Lou Barletta. You have Joe Gale, who I want to say is a Montgomery County commissioner. You have Bill McSwain, who's a former U.S. attorney. You have Charlie Giroux. Full disclosure, Charlie is a, is a good guy. He was the first candidate I ever knocked doors for in, as sort of somebody who's really politically active. My parents supported a local candidate when we lived in, in Western New York, but Charlie's the first guy I can remember knocking doors for back in 1998. I like him. It's not clear to me what his pathway is in terms of winning the primary, but I mean, honestly, it's anybody's guess. It is absolutely anybody's guess who's going to be the nominee coming out of this crowded field. And I'm sure there are a lot of candidates that I've forgotten. And one of those candidates that I've forgotten could be the one who wins because it's such a huge field and it could, it's, it's really, it's anybody's, it's anybody's game. I think Mastriano is so conservative and is so tied with the 2020 election that it is hard to see him being able to pivot from that and run a successful campaign on the issues that people care about today. That being said, and, and Barletta could have some problems. I don't know. I don't know how much people remember. Like, he was really, really hawkish on issues of immigration. I don't know if that would kill him in Pennsylvania, but you could see some areas where that might translate into a problem for him. But I, but Pennsylvania is one of those states 
that looks like it is it is positioned to snap back really hard against Democrats. So it's it's impossible to handicap this this Republican uh, gubernatorial primary. It's impossible to handicap the gubernatorial election. I just don't know. But we'll definitely come back and look at Pennsylvania again after that primary is over. Now, also on May 17th, we have primaries in North Carolina. There are a couple of consequential primaries here, mostly on the Republican side. State row offices are not up this year, which is different than Ohio. Oh, by the way, I should have mentioned in the Ohio uh, side for the Democrats, they have a contested primary between two former mayors. Nan Whaley, I think, is former. One of them, uh, Nan Whaley and, and John Cranley, are the two names of the two mayors. One was former mayor of Dayton. One was former mayor of Cincinnati. Don't ask me which one is which. But those are the two guys running. Mike DeWine is, is, uh, has a contested primary for governor, but he looks like he's going to win that one pretty easily. And probably the guy who's running against DeWine, I want to say it's former rep uh, Jim Renacci. Sorry if I mispronounced that. But if you're him, you've got to be thinking, man, I should have jumped in that Senate race. <laughs> but anyway, that's, uh, that's a whole different matter. But just to, to, to sort of dot all the I's and cross all the T's in Ohio, which we just did in Pennsylvania, and now we're looking at North Carolina. So governor, lieutenant governor, all those races are not on the ballot. So we have House and Senate. The Senate seat is open, as were true in Ohio and Pennsylvania. These are the three big Republican retirements of the cycle. Rob Portman, Pat Toomey, and now Richard Burr. If you were going to retire, this is a good cycle as a Republican in which to actually do so. Democrats nominee, it looks like it's going to be Cherry Beasley, who is the former state chief justice of the Supreme Court, who has a chance to win but is not favored against any of the Republicans that are running in the Senate primary. Senate primary is between former Governor Pat McCrory and current reps Ted Budd and Mark Walker. Ted Budd received the endorsement of both Donald Trump and the Club for Growth. Since the Trump endorsement, Budd has been leading in the primary. I expect him to beat McCrory. You might ask yourself, wow, Trump's endorsement is really powerful if you have this member of Congress who's beating a former sitting governor. But it's important to keep in mind McCrory lost re-election in 2016 when Trump was actually carrying the state and he lost a re-election against current governor Roy Cooper. So McCrory probably had some base issues before Bud even jumped into the race. I was wondering for a while if Mark Walker could pull the sort of Deb Fisher, Mike Braun, but it looks like actually Ted, Ted Budd has consolidated enough support that he's probably going to be the nominee. And I expect Budd to probably win the Senate race when all is said and done. It could be a bit of a challenge, but he should be considered a slight but significant favorite in a race that I would put right on the borderline of leans and likely Republican. So this is going to be probably a clear win for Trump. Trump endorses Ted Budd, and if Ted Budd wins the primary in general, then that's that's a win in the win one of the win column for for Trump in that sense. What might not be as much of a win column for the Trumpist movement is that one of the most let's just say very online netcon-ish. You know, if anybody could be tr- more more Catholic than the Pope, right? This guy would be trying to be more Trumpy than Trump. Madison Cawthorn and Cawthorn is in some real trouble now. One significant point to keep in mind here in terms of North Carolina is that North Carolina has runoffs for candidates who don't get above 50% of the vote. So Bud may go to a runoff with either Pat McCrory or Walker. McCrory is more likely of the two. So, So that could happen. But this is important for Madison Cawthorn because Cawthorn has a series of primary challengers such that I I think it is very unlikely that Cawthorn is going to break that 50% threshold. That means he is likely going to go to a one-on-one race. And the most likely candidate to move on with him is State Senator Chuck Edwards. There's a couple of others that are running. 
and that have some outside support. But Edwards seems to have the majority of support from local officials and local folks to go to that runoff with Cawthorn. That's going to be a tough ask for Cawthorn because he won as sort of a, an unknown with a good story, right? He had the story of being paralyzed. He was young. He was the youngest member and he was, you know, running as somebody who's going to be darling of conservatives. He has not worn well. I would say that he has not shown in some way some of the maturity that you would want to see. Just in the case of some of the kind of, of dumb stuff that you do on social media when you're in your 20s actually is not like smart when you're in Congress. And he's he's been caught up in a number of controversies, has been supportive of some ultra far right groups. You know, there have been credi credi credible allegations made about anti-Semitism and, and other things, whether that's he actually is that or he's just not like checking his friends carefully enough. I'm not going to adjudicate because I haven't followed them that closely. But Cawthorn is definitely somebody who seems like he could be on the way out. I don't expect we'll know the answer to that on May 17th, but watch to see who makes the primary runoff. And I expect all of the non-Cawthorns to consolidate around whichever non-Cawthorn makes it into the general election. So look at the vote totals for Cawthorn, vote totals for everybody else, and kind of see how that breaks down. All right, so that's the, uh, the other primary that I'll be watching in North Carolina. Either way, that seat is Republican enough that, that it's going to be a GOP hold even with Cawthorn. All right, our next May 17th primary is in Oregon, and it's a primary for governor. I primarily bring this primary up because it will be completely and utterly chaotic, and it's just fascinating <laughs> because nobody has any idea what's going to happen. We've contested primaries on both sides. Democrats have a contested primary between uh, Oregon House Speaker Tina Kotek and Oregon State Treasurer Tobias Reed. Republicans have a contested primary. At last count, there were something like 19 candidates, and the highest of them had 6% of the vote, 11% if you push leaners really hard. So who's going to be the Republican nominee in this? We have no idea. Nobody knows. I called one of my former students who lives in Oregon and is politically smart, and <laughs> asked her, I said, who, who she thought the nominee was going to be? And she said, I don't think anybody knows at this point. This is an area where if somebody wanted to jump in and try to burnish their credentials, and I'm not just saying Trump, it could also be a DeSantis or a Youngkin or, or somebody like that. If you could find a candidate that you really liked in Oregon and you do a prominent endorsement, you do some rallies, you do some, you know, you drop some, some money and ads their way, that could have a significant impact in a low info primary. And you can actually pick the winner. But I don't know that anybody's really followed it closely enough to be able to answer that question. All right. By the way, on the Democratic side, Reed is considered the more moderate for, by Oregon standards. Kotek is considered the more progressive. What's interesting about that is if Kotek wins, and if the Republicans nominate somebody who turns out to be not the highest caliber candidate, waiting in the wings is independent senator, former Democrat turned independent uh, state senator Betsy Johnson. Johnson is known as a moderate rural Democrat. She's sort of a, a, a blue dog in the legislature in the past. And so she has an opportunity to be a spoiler either by taking a bunch of moderate votes from a more progressive Democrat or by taking some more conservative voters from a Republican. There's an outside chance she could win. The question is, where is she going to get her financial support from? You would need somebody who is willing to throw a lot of money into an independent candidacy like that. But it's, it's worth keeping an eye on just because if the West Coast voters are fed up with Democrats and the Republicans don't offer a credible alternative, Somebody like Johnson could actually sneak through and in a gubernatorial race, 
you could see somebody who is not from either party win. And that's always just intrinsically interesting for those of us who are political junkies. So keep half an eye on Oregon on this crowded primary night of May 17th. We will likely not know the outcome of Oregon because Oregon has an entirely vote-by-mail system, entirely vote-by-mail primary. Democrats, I would say, are uh, slight favorites with Kotek and maybe more substantial favorites with a more, uh, more moderate candidate. But Oregon is still a deeply, deeply blue state. We come now to our final primary day, and that is May 24th, in which we have primaries in Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas, and a couple of other states. We'll start with Alabama, not only because it's geographically first, but because the Alabama Senate race is kind of interesting. Richard Shelby, long-term incumbent, retired. It's an open seat, but it's an open seat. The Republicans are heavily favored to win. But the Republican primary, as you might imagine, had some interesting dynamics. Donald Trump very early endorsed Representative Mo Brooks, who was an enthusiastic backer of uh, January 6th. He spoke at the January 6th rally, and he was really kind of out front in some of that. Also running were former uh, CEO of the Chamber of Commerce and Richard Shelby Chief of Staff, Katie Boyd-Britt, who is a, a young, energetic, very energetic candidate who has run a, a really sharp campaign. And Black Hawk pilot Mike Durant, if you've ever seen the movie Black Hawk Down, yes, this is the Mike Durant, we will not leave, be, leave you behind. And so he's famous from, from that. He is a retired Black Hawk pilot and has subsequently been a businessman. What has happened over the course of the race is that Britt has gained support, Durant has gained support, and Mo, Mo Brooks' support has cratered. Trump's endorsement was the high watermark. And it was to the point that Trump pulled his endorsement of Mo Brooks and accused Mo Brooks of going woke, going woke on January 6th. Because in a rally six months before Trump pulled the endorsement, Mo Brooks said, you know, it might be time to move on from 2020. Brooks then fired back with a description of some of the things that Trump wanted him to do that were impossible, like suspend the Constitution or, uh, you know, suspend the election, remove Joe Biden as president, make Trump president, and then call a new special election for president and do all of these things immediately, which is kind of impossible. I, I don't know the extent to which this is truth versus sour grapes on either of their parts, but it was certainly the first Trump endorsement to implode in this cycle. Moral of the story is where any one of these three Republicans would be a prohibitive favorite in a general election. What I expect in Alabama, which is a state that has runoffs, is a runoff between Britt and Durant. Trump has talked about potentially endorsing somebody in that eventuality. My money would be on Britt if that happens, simply because, you know, Durant has... Some people have alleged that he has ties to some people that now work for the Lincoln Project and things like that. Although Trump does like the, the sort of military uh, background as well. I really don't know. I think either Britt or Durant would be a strong candidate. And the runoff between the two of them will be interesting to watch just in terms of you know, how those, those dynamics break down. And it'd be very hard to handicap. But I expect both of them to kind of get somewhere in the 30s with Brooks as the third wheel. And that race will go on to a runoff, which we will chronicle in more detail when that date happens. May 24th, also, we have Georgia. And when you have Georgia on your mind, you also have another situation where the Trump endorsement is a big, big deal. We've been talking about the Trump endorsement a lot, and that is another important factor in several of the primaries in this contest. Actually, Georgia has the most primaries that we're going to chronicle of these races, but 
It's also not going to take us as long as Pennsylvania because there aren't quite so many candidates in several of them. Okay, first let's look at the Georgia Senate primary. Democrats have the incumbent of uh, Raphael Warnock, who won in the special election the day before January 6th on January 5th, 2021. And so now we have Republicans vying to replace him. The overwhelming favorite, an early Trump endorsee, is former football star Herschel Walker. It's hard to overestimate the degree to which University of Georgia football people are fans of Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker is going to win the Republican primary. He's got 60-some percent of the vote, and it should not be that close. And so that's an area Trump encouraged him to run. Trump and Herschel Walker have ties that go back to the USFL of the 1980s. Fun fact, Herschel Walker played his first professional football for Donald Trump. Herschel Walker was the star running back of the New York, New Jersey Generals, which was Donald Trump's football team in the United States Football League. Yes, there is a new version of the USFL that's running on Fox Sports. No, Donald Trump does not have anything to do with it. Neither, as far as I can tell, does Herschel Walker. But so that is a, a connection that's been there for a long time. And of course, Walker was an enthusiastic Trump supporter and a major figure in the Black Voices for Trump campaigns in both 2016 and 2020. Walker versus Warnock is a toss-up. And there's some similarities between uh, the two men. Both have dedicated base of supporters. Both have been accused of various different uh, issues of domestic violence in their, in their past that their opponents seem to think that the other guys are worse. Again, uh, not necessarily adjudicating that because I have not followed the details as closely, but I know that's a factor. This is anybody's game. In this environment, though, I would say the race would lean very slightly toward Walker, but in general, this would be a toss-up. In the gubernatorial primary, we have a primary that is entirely focused on 2020, and so would be a barometer for how much tolerance the Republican Party has, all else being equal, for a straight relitigation of January 6th. Here's the background. Brian Kemp is the incumbent Republican governor. Brian Kemp was a pretty conservative guy all things being equal, both in terms of his COVID policies, in terms of his support for President Trump early on in, in the Trump administration, so on and so forth. What Brian Kemp was not willing to do was to argue that the election in his state was stolen and that there were shenanigans and so on and so forth. He defended the integrity of Georgia's electoral system. Why? Partially because before he was governor, Brian Kemp was secretary of state. And when he ran for governor in 2018, he was accused of having stolen the election by his Democratic opponent, who lost by a wider margin than Trump lost by. So Brian Kemp, while he is a conservative in many ways, does not have time for what he considers to be shenanigans about people claiming that an election was stolen when as Secretary of State he knows the score and says that it was not. So that's a breach between him and Trump. Trump has been trashing Brian Kemp since then, and landed a top-tier recruit to run against Kemp in a really, really, really ironic sense, because the person that he landed to run against him was Senator David Perdue, who lost his runoff, in part at least, I would argue, because of Republicans' attempt to suppress their own vote because they claimed the election was stolen in Georgia. And you did have people going around telling uh, Republican voters not to vote, thanks Lynn Wood. Okay, so this costs David Perdue his re-election as, as a senator. Absent that, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have won. I don't know about Leffler and Warnock, but there's no doubt in my mind that Purdue would have won, absent that uh, particular circumstance. So now he is claiming the election was stolen, and he's blaming Kemp, and he is running against Kemp for re-election, and he's going to lose. Kemp is winning by something like 
well over 50%. I want I can't remember if it was 52 or 56, but enough over 50% that this is not going to go to a runoff. Kemp's going to win this thing in one round based on all the re- most recent polling that we've seen. And if that is the case, then he will move on to a general election against his 2018 opponent, Stacey Abrams, the Democrat Stacey Abrams. In a 2022-type environment, Kemp should be considered a significant, although not a, an insurmountable, favorite to win. This is on the border of leans and likely, in my estimation. But Kemp would have a slight advantage, but significant advantage, over Abrams in a general election. So this is likely to be an outright failure in terms of the Trump endorsements, which is balanced out by the outright success that he would probably have with Herschel Walker. The final race I want to talk about in Georgia is a... House race. The winner of this House race will be a Republican in the general election. This is a deep red seat, but it is a little bit of new territory for the incumbent. And the incumbent I'm talking about is, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene. MTG, who won in a six-wear primary and then a runoff last year and has been, let's just say, colorful since then. By which I mean she's been a supporter of conspiracy theories, she's been kicked off of committees, she has spoken at white supremacist and white nationalist events, and just in general, she has not made herself a particularly popular figure among her colleagues, let's just say. So that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her most prominent primary opponent, the one that is most likely to, if this goes to a runoff, get her into a runoff, is conservative businesswoman Jennifer Strahan. She's running as a Christian conservative, a mom, and a problem solver, right? So she's not necessarily running, uh, you know, as, as a liberal, uh, but she's running as a conservative from this district, somebody who certainly would, would support a lot of the Trump policies, but who wants to actually accomplish things. This will be an interesting test because if Strahan can get into a primary runoff with MTG, there's a decent chance that Marjorie Taylor Greene goes down. And I think there's a lot of people in the party as a whole who would like to see that happen. There's also a new slice of territory in redistricting that was added to the district. So, so there's some new territory for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Greene has a huge cash on hand advantage, a huge, a huge cash advantage in general. And it's possible she could wrap things up in one round. But there's that possibility of the runoff. There's that possibility that she ends up losing in a primary. It's happened before. It's happened to people with a lot more incumbency than Marjorie Taylor Greene. Steve King of Iowa, who'd been there for a long time, when he was seen as, as sort of flirting with this white nationalism stuff, he got booted by his primary electorate. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here with MTG in the 2022 Georgia Republican primary. The winner of that primary is going to be the next congressperson from that district. Uh, next, let's talk briefly about Arkansas. John Bozeman, the incumbent senator is facing a primary challenge from, I think his name is Jake Bouquet, Boucher, I'm not exactly sure how you say it, a, a retired football player, former member of the New England Patriots, who has received backing from an out-of-state super PAC. There's a potential upset here, and some people have been talking about this as a potential upset, but uh, Bozeman has a ton of support in the vote-rich uh, northwest of Arkansas, vote-rich in a Republican primary. And so I would expect Bozeman to win, although perhaps by an uncomfortably close margin. However, it is in theory possible that he would not be able to uh, wrap this race up. Finally, we have the Texas runoffs. I mention this mostly because we did that coverage of the Texas primary elections, and this is also on May 24th. The runoffs that I'm tracking the most uh, closely, first of all, will be Texas 28 between Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros. 
For those who don't remember, Cuellar is the blue dog Democrat who is pro-life, pro-gun, and pro-Azerbaijan. By the last, I mean he was investigated for his ties to Azerbaijan, and the FBI was, was doing a probe of that. Jessica Cisneros is a, a down-the-line, bold progressive in the district and, and you know, running certainly to Cuellar's left. She's also been hit with allegations, uh, this time allegations about an extramarital affair while she was a teacher. So I believe there was a student involved, but I can't remember the specifics, uh, so don't quote me on that if I'm wrong. The winner of that will go on to face the winner of the Republican runoff on the side between Sandra Witten, who was the nominee against Cuellar in 2020, and Cassie Garcia, who's a former state director for Ted Cruz, running in a, a more, I would say, you know, old school, compassionate conservative line. But certainly you'd expect that she'd have some support from the Cruz machine. She's She's got some decent fundraising. Garcia is probably the strongest general election candidate in a Garcia-Cisneros race. This could move into toss-up territory, depending on just how bad things are for, for Democrats with Hispanics. I think Cuellar beats Witten, and one of the other combinations between the two would be harder to handicap. So I'm keeping an eye on that one. Texas Attorney General is going to stay with Republicans, but of course this is between Ken Paxton, who is the controversial incumbent with you know some allegations of impropriety, and George P. Bush, the Texas Lands Commissioner, with some well, not allegations, but people who don't like him because of, you know, his, his sort of dynastic ties. He, of course, is the son of uh, Jeb Bush. So that race will be interesting to, to watch as well. And those are the two primary runoffs that I am keeping an eye on in Texas. Okay, so that's going to summarize all of the primaries in the month of May that are the most important for you to watch. I think by the end of May, we will have a clearer sense, although perhaps not a fully clear sense, of the weight that a Trump endorsement carries or does not carry in a Republican primary. I don't expect any more clarity on the direction of the Democrats, because by and large, the Democrats have fewer contested primaries this month that are interesting for that dynamic. However, the Cuellar-Cisneros runoff could tell us something about the appetite for more progressive-leaning candidates in Democratic primaries. So that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on the Facebook and Instagram feeds of the Robertson School. Please do give us those five-star ratings if you can. And tell your friends, tell your family members, tell the political junkies in your life to subscribe to Blind Politics. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. (laughs) 